week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from Egyptian folklore where we'll see why you should never dream to be more than you are. Great lesson for the kids. And also, if you're camping with overly ambitious strangers, uh, maybe keep your dagger on you. The creature this time is a tree monster who won't eat you because they're already super into their armpit fruit. This is Myths and Legends, episode 272, Imposter. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes from Egyptian folklore. It's more of a fairy tale set in the Middle Ages. We'll open up in the city of Alexandria with a tailor's apprentice named... Labakan. Labakan was uh, good. He was good at his job. He was a tailor. He was smart, but he was bored. He was 22, basically middle-aged. I'm just kidding. Life expectancy wasn't that bad, but Labakan's ennui was. Sometimes he would amaze everyone in the shop and stitch like the needle was red hot. Other times he would stare listlessly out the window for hours. Everyone marveled at the tailor wunderkind. No one, not even Labakan himself, knew where he came from. He would look off in the distance, see the sultan's palace, and dream that he was the lost son of a sultan or a king. His co-workers at the shop would see his face. Eyebrow cocked and lower lip jutting out in a sneer of cold command and call it his, quote, aristocratic face. In a Disney movie, Labakan would break out into a musical soliloquy to set up the rest of the movie during these distracted, daydreaming times. In reality, he just got like a smack on the back of the head from the master tailor. One morning, horns blew from the street. The Sultan of Alexandria's brother was visiting. Labakan buried himself in his work so he wouldn't think about the future he believed was his, but seemed forever out of reach. Then, the occasion of a royal visitor was a point of personal panic for the small shop of tailors. Largely thanks to Labakan's skill, the shop became well-known throughout Alexandria for its quality, so much so that when the sultan's brother needed to have his suit altered, Labakan's shop was the first one they asked. Labakan was the only one allowed to touch the suit, and his boss pounded on his door ordering him in to work through the night. No overtime. Labakan looked at the suit and scribbled notes for what the sultan's brother wanted done. Labakan inspected it, stood in front of it, and... Hmm. Ten minutes later, he held out his arms, looked at the waistline. It was a perfect fit. Somehow, this made it all the more difficult. As he looked at himself in the mirrors, he now cut the perfect figure of royalty. He started unbuttoning the suit to get to work on it, but then he stopped. What made them, the princes and the royalty of the world, any better than him? Their birth? <laughs> he didn't know his parents. He could be a prince. Then, that thought became lodged in his mind. He could be a prince. He looked the part now. He turned to his workstation to the dozen workstations in the shop. In his short time here, he knew his co-workers. People had spent lifetimes toiling away in a corner, 
Maybe that was the life that they wanted, but that wasn't for him. He didn't take the suit off. He ran home, gathered his possessions, and that evening, slipped out of the city of Alexandria. My work is mysterious and important, Labakan said to the traveler. They agreed. It was a mystery why an important man dressed like a prince was walking on the road like a common traveler. It did help to cultivate an air of mystery, but not the kind of mystery that Labakan wanted, and he realized he needed a horse. So he spent most of his money getting Merva, an old, steady horse. Riding along on Merva, not sure of his next move, but relishing his freedom, Labakan heard hooves behind him. It was another rider. A young man, about his same age, rode up alongside him, introduced himself, and asked to join Labakan on the ride. Labakan was more than happy for the company, but he immediately felt self-conscious by the young man's stallion. His clothes were almost as nice as Labakan's too, and Labakan imagined the young man didn't have to steal his. Still, Omar, the traveler, was friendly. They rode together for a while, camped that night, and continued on the next day. Omar, studying the road ahead, was crackling with excitement. Labakan chuckled, uh, but what was up? Omar lifted his coat to reveal the dagger at his belt. This was what's up. This time tomorrow, he would meet his father. Omar shared that he was from Cairo. He had been raised by a pasha, kind of like a governor. But get this, the pasha, Elfi Bey, wasn't Omar's biological father a long time ago. In a kingdom not far from where they were riding, the astrologers had warned his father, a king, that there would be an uprising. The king would live, but if his son stayed, Omar would not. So he put Omar in the care of a friend of his, with the command to not tell Omar of his origins until his 22nd birthday. That was a few days ago. Now, he needed only to take the dagger to the Great Pillar four days east of Alexandria, and he would meet his father, the king. It almost physically hurt Labakan to look at Omar after that. They were traveling companions. Both were given away by their parents. Omar knew of his, but Labakan had worked hard to get where he was. He wasn't just given to some noble. He had grown up in alleyways and gutters. Still, this man, Omar, had the life he wanted. What he dreamed of when he looked out on the palace from his workstation the reason why he stole the suit. Hmm? Labakan asked, roused from his daydreaming. Omar asked again, what was Labakan's story? Also, the guy looked positively aristocratic when he zoned out like that. Chills. Labakan said that he was a nobody, a tailor from Alexandria. He should get back there, too. He was quickly realizing that that was all he was ever gonna be. That night, as Omar snored a few feet away under the stars, Labakan sighed. Why couldn't his life have been this grand mystery? Why didn't he have a dagger to give to his biological father so he could live up to his true potential? It just wasn't fair. Then, he sat up. Even after just a couple days on the road, Omar trusted Labakan, trusted him enough to sleep next to him, to leave his gold unbound and unsecured, to leave his dagger 
tucked there, just inside his pack. Labakan breathed. He was just, just going to hold it. Just feel it. It was the closest he was ever going to get to royalty. The dagger was weighty, gilded, sharp. Labakan sliced his finger a bit when he tested the blade. Then, the thought that he had been unintentionally avoiding came into focus. Here he was, in the wilderness, dressed like a prince, next to a prince. He had everything. All he had to do, he slid the dagger again from its sheath. One motion. The dagger was so sharp that Omar would be unconscious before he felt it. One swipe, one plunge, and it could all be Labakan's. As Labakan stood over the sleeping body of his newfound friend, his friend who had trusted him with everything, he took the dagger and sheathed it. He might be a thief, but he wasn't a murderer. Besides, Omar would never be able to catch him anyway. He untied both the horses, ponied Merva a bit while in the back of Omar's, and when they were far enough away, slapped Merva's rear so that the horse took off, leaving Omar completely stranded. Labakan galloped on the strong, sure stallion toward the life he had always dreamed of. heard of imposter syndrome where someone despite being competent and experienced at something feels like they're a fraud or an imposter and they're going to be found out i've dealt with it you know who didn't labakan despite literally being an imposter that's because in his own mind he was right where he was supposed to be where he deserved to be he had always known there was no difference between him and royalty now it was being proven right before his eyes Labakan rode to the pillar, where the king's retinue had put up pavilions to shield the royalty from the sunlight. A procession of horses and camels stretched far off into the distance, and the courtiers parted at the sight of the horse. Labakan dismounted, approached the tall man at the center by the pillar, and presented the dagger. With a bow, he said, simply, Here I am whom you seek. The man exploded in tears taking the dagger and then embracing the young man, calling him his dear son, Omar. Labakan, in that moment, feeling the embrace of his father and knowing that he had a place in the world, felt complete. But the story says the sunlight of his joy wasn't to remain unclouded for long. Shouts went up from the guards at the periphery. There was a rider approaching. Labakan gasped. Okay, time to spin this. Oh my gosh, this guy. The young man approaching told the guards to unhand him, and they did. He rushed forward until he stood before the king in Labakan. It was Omar. He was bathed in sweat. He must have awoken in the night, found that he had been robbed, caught the horse, and pushed Merva as hard as he could to get there so fast. He told the king not to let this imposter take him in. He was Omar, and he would not let anyone attempt to rob him. Labakan. <laughs> broke out laughing. He turned to the king. Oh my gosh, this guy. He met this failed tailor's apprentice a few days ago on the road. He caught the young man trying to steal from him, so they parted ways. 
Now look at him. Labakan, the apostor, turned to Omar. Labakan, please, you're embarrassing yourself. Omar, the real Omar's, jaw dropped. He pointed to Labakan. That, that's your name. He turned to the king. You left me with Elphibay in Cairo. Labakan cut him off. Yeah, I told you that. Yesterday. The nerve. He stole those clothes, by the way. Labakan turned back to the king. Look at that nag he's riding. Labakan said that uh, he really deserves more pity than anger. You're gracious, my son, the king said to Labakan. The king said to Labakan, pretending to be Omar, while Omar, who everyone thought was Labakan, began to weep. The king took Labakan's arm, who I'm going to be referring to as Fomar, whenever there's any doubt, and the pair left Omar standing at the top of the hill, defeated. He tried to follow, but the guards crossed their spears in front of him. While Fomar, you know, Labakan, and the king became better acquainted, the real Omar refused to give up his birthright. He followed the king's caravan on Merva until the guards, making a judgment call, chased him down, bound his hands, and made him walk behind a horse with a rope tied to his neck. If the guards were feeling like a laugh, they would spur the horse onto a canter so the would-be imposter could get some exercise. When they finally made it to the city, the guards offered to cut Omar loose if he gave up on this foolish notion that he was the prince. Omar refused, and while Fomar... Labakan was paraded through the streets at the king's side, the man proclaiming the return of his son after so many years of strife, no thanks to you all, Omar was quietly ushered toward the dungeon, where the men would disabuse him of the notion that he was the king's true heir with beatings. We'll see what happens when Labakan gets to the kingdom, but that will be right after this. That's not my son, the queen shrieked. The king said, no, yeah, he, he was, though. He had the dagger, he knew about the Cairo guy, he had the horse and clothes, it, it's their son. The queen persisted. No. The prophet had showed her Omar's face in her dreams, and this wasn't Omar. The king said, dreams. Last night he dreamed he was eating a pita the size of a sleeping bag in a kiddie pool of hummus. Uh, did she think that that would happen to him? Deep pause. Well, he was the king, so actually he probably could make that happen. Still, it was a dream. It wasn't worth derailing everything that was happening. Besides, they already had someone try to fake them out. That imposter, Labakan, was in the dungeon. The king said, where, where did a lowly, worthless peasant get such notions that he could pretend to be royalty? And a tailor at that. Blech. Labakan, just the worst. Fomar, aka Labakan, swallowed hard, should really have given them a fake name on the road. Not only for, like, OPSEC, but because all this was really hurtful. But no, he deserved this. He deserved to be Omar. And there was nothing anyone could do to make him think otherwise. The queen was the opposite. There was nothing that anyone could say to dissuade her from thinking that Fomar was the imposter. The king was wrong about one thing, though. Prince Omar wasn't in the dungeon. Not yet. He had managed to break free from the guards, and... Half a dozen rooms later, found himself in the throne room, 
He walked forward, burying his neck to the king and queen, telling them that he wouldn't live like this, either declare that he was their heir or have him executed. Fomar and the king shook their heads. Uh, wow, melodramatic much? It landed with the queen, though, whose fingers shook as she pointed. That young man, she had seen his face before in her dreams. That was her son. The court gasped. But the king, who very much did not want uncertainty regarding his heir in the air, stepped up. Nope, sorry. He said that dreams did not come true. The cook's servant rushed in to whisper in his ear. His hummus pool was ready. The king nodded. Most people's dreams did not come true, and as the king, he needed to exist in a world of facts and certainties, and the facts were that Fomar here brought him the dagger and told him of his childhood. This pretender came after the fact, empty-handed, taking advantage of his son's kindness. The king, with a flick of his wrist, ordered the real Omar to be bound and dragged from the hall. Fomar breathed when the king turned to the queen and said, not another word about this. But there would be more said. Though the king refused to change his edict, the queen took it to all of her oldest friends, the trusted people of the castle. She put the question to them, how to prove that the prince was an imposter and how to get her husband to listen. They came up with an idea. Honey, I think I might have been wrong about Omar. The queen admitted a day or so later. I am not wrong about Omar. Wait, what did you say? Did you say you were wrong? The king was barely able to process this information. The queen almost never admitted that she was wrong. I mean, the king left out that she almost never was, but eh, details. Regardless, this was a big day. How fast could they throw together a parade? Well, I wasn't saying I was wrong, the queen clarified. She was saying that she might be. She was pretty sure Omar was who he said he was, and not some tailor that just fell into this by accident. But for the king to truly be right, she would need to prove herself wrong. The king said yes, absolutely. He wanted so badly to be right, how could they prove her wrong? She said, well, both the guy in the dungeons and the man claiming to be Omar said that the other was some Labakan, a tailor from Alexandria. The king nodded. Yeah, that was weirdly specific, but it was probably just an alias. Like, who would use their real name and profession when it came to stealing the throne? The queen said, well, this man already wasn't the smartest. He was caught immediately, so it would be easy to prove her wrong. Put both of them up to the test to see who can make the best clothes. Whoever did a better job was the true tailor in disguise. The queen asked if Elfie Bey ever mentioned anything about sewing in his letters. The king shrugged. There hadn't been any letters. They had to keep Omar's existence a complete secret, lest the spies find him and kill him. The queen shrugged. Well, then, should be a fair competition. She said, tell you what. The one way she would say, I told you so, was if the current Omar, the prince, who, remember, is Fomar, is if the current Omar would be able to sew really well. The king agreed. He laughed. Honestly, this was a really bad deal for her. It had to be a completely unforced error for his guy to lose this one. Because even if you're trying to steal a throne, it would be easy to see through this obvious trap. Sorry, he was putting down the deposit for the parade float now. 
Really? The king looked down at the fantastic three-piece suit that Fomar whipped up in like a day and a half. He sighed and turned to the guy who just came from the dungeon. And that, what, what is that? Pants? A hat? The grimy prisoner replied. Why does it have sleeves? The king shook his head. Well, this was obviously a draw. What? The queen and Fomar cried in unison. The queen said that there was a clear winner here, and for once, Fomar agreed with her. Look at that stitching. The court tailor couldn't do better. The king turned to Fomar. For real, bud. You need to stop talking right now. You see, the king actually liked Fomar, so this troubled him. Fomar was unlike anyone in court. He was personable, humble, and smart. He seemed to make the most of every opportunity and always seemed to be striving. Still, the, let's call it near miss of the sewing competition, worried the king. On a completely unrelated note, he saddled up his best horse and went alone into the desert. There was someone he needed to speak with. It said that a fairy lived in the desert who, in times of trouble, would guide, quote, kings of his race, which I'm pretty sure just means line. When she erupted from a tree, in the way that the Legend of Zelda fairies leap from the pools, she said that she could see that his errand was an honest one. Well, the desire to know the truth was honest. Not what happened back there in the sewing competition. That was, there was a clear winner there, and the king should just take the L on that one. Still, she could help. She held out two small diamond-encrusted boxes. Those were to be opened by the two young men. One said, honor and glory, and the other, wealth and happiness. All would be revealed when they made their choices. After a long walk back, and the king trying and failing to open the boxes, he was really impatient, and his reasoning was that if the magical fairy wanted to make sure that he couldn't see what was in the boxes, then she should use her magic to do so. And he was right about that, she did. Still, it was really annoying. He didn't envy the boys, who would have to make the choice when he got home. But he knew it had to be done. If a peasant was pretending to be his son and word got out, he'd never live that down. Like literally, if the peasants learned that there was no difference between the nobles and them other than who they happened to be born to, he might actually die. He didn't want another uprising on his hands, so he was going to set things right. So, he set the boxes down before the young men, who looked over them. Fomar still didn't make eye contact with Omar, as the king explained what they were to do. He told Fomar that doubts had been sown about his claim to the throne, and, as a way for him to be sure, a stranger in the desert gave him some boxes. The king said that now that he was actually explaining the process, it didn't sound super legit. She lived in a tree. That's not better. Regardless, this is what they were going to do. Fomar would choose first, then Omar. Fomar looked at the two boxes. Wealth and happiness, or honor and glory. What was honor and glory? Behaving honorably had only ever gotten him a life as a thankless tailor, and he had only been on the rise since the moment he decided to break bad and steal the suit. Glory? Sure, it was nice, but happiness, happiness to him, was finding a place in the world. And wealth? He had grown up as an orphan in medieval Alexandria, so he would take material security over the intangibles of honor and glory. You couldn't eat honor and glory. He took the wealth and happiness box. Omar, the real Omar, didn't even care that Fomar took the first box. He was going to choose honor and glory anyway. Sure, 
At one point, he might have chosen wealth and happiness, but he had seen in the past few weeks how quickly those things could be taken away from you. He had lost all of his wealth and happiness with a single deception from a stranger. He would take honor and glory because even if you had nothing, you could always choose to be honorable and the glory that you've earned from the good deeds you've done will never leave you. Both men, at the same time, opened their boxes. Both sighed. One in relief, one in resignation. Omar, when he opened his, found a small crown and scepter on a cushion, a token signifying that he was the rightful prince. Labakan found a sewing needle and some thread. It seemed that a tailor was all he would ever be. Labakan didn't even hear the queen yelling for the guards to apprehend him, for the courtiers calling for the death of the imposter. Omar removed the crown from his box, and it grew in his hands. His father beckoned him forward and placed it on his head. The king watched as Labakan was dragged from the room. Then he held up his hand. What Labakan did was unforgivable. Labakan lowered his head. He knew. The king said he wasn't done. He wasn't looking for a plea. The thing was, he liked Labakan. If Labakan had turned out to be his boy, he would have been proud to call him son. Labakan was a perfectly wonderful person as Labakan. He didn't need to be anyone else. So, he wouldn't be executing Labakan today. Labakan would be given his horse, Merva, and the clothes on his back. He was advised to not tempt the king's wrath or take his forgiveness for granted. He was to leave the kingdom as quickly as possible. Labakan thanked the man, and the king said he was giving Labakan his life. Go do something with it. As Labakan rode out the gate, he had only the diamond-encrusted box to prove that the last few weeks hadn't been a dream. And on the day's home, he thought. All of his problems began the day he stole the suit and left, thinking that he needed to prove that he was somebody in this world. But he didn't need that. He was seeing for the first time that he was okay as Labakan, as himself. He had risen from the streets to be a tailor, and he didn't need to prove anything to anyone. If they couldn't see his worth, that was their problem, not his. With renewed purpose, he spurred Merva on to a gallop or Merva's version of a gallop, and headed back toward Alexandria. We'll see what happens when Labakan gets back home to Alexandria to meet all the people he left high and dry, but that will, once again, be right after this. Here we go. Labakan knocked on the door of the shop of the master tailor, the place where, up until three weeks ago, he had been an apprentice. The place was still standing, so the sultan must not have been that mad at them. Labakan swallowed hard when the door opened. He held the suit out, improved to the exact specifications, and mended from a few weeks of wear. He looked the master tailor in the eyes as he said he was deeply profoundly sorry, 
He had betrayed the tailor's trust, and he understood that the man never wanted to see him again. He only wanted to come back to return the suit. The tailor chuckled. Labakan had left them in quite the bind. He had to sew a whole new suit for the visiting monarch. He had to have the shop work nights for a week, and even then they lost other clients. All for free, too. But Labakan returning now, it showed integrity. <sighs> he said he had taken Labakan in when Labakan was just a boy. He taught Labakan himself, and Labakan was truly his greatest student. The boy was like a son to him. He opened his arms wide for a hug. Ah, he couldn't stay mad at the kid. Labakan was about to cry. He stepped forward and wrapped his arms around the tailor. The man who, other than the king who had just exiled him forever, was the next closest thing he had to a father figure. Labakan was happy. He was home. Got him, the master tailor said, kicking the door shut but not letting Labakan go at all. What? Labakan tried to say. But it was answered and cut off by a sharp punch to the gut. All around him, his co-workers stepped away from their workstations, grabbing whatever they thought would cause the most pain, and really just went to town, wailing on Labakan, working out all that frustration from the week of torturous work, with the sultan's axe hanging over their heads. Labakan spat out some blood and said that he brought back the suit he was sorry. The tailor said, oh great, two weeks late, so helpful. They were enthusiastic. And an hour or so later, Labakan was tossed out on the street, bloody and bruised, but thankfully not broken. His now former co-workers spat at him, telling him to never come back. He was happy to agree to that. He mounted Merva as best he could. He ended up just throwing himself over the saddle and making his way to an inn to rest, and used what little money he had remaining on a room. There, he slowly healed, and in time, made a resolution. The story says he decided to stop trying to be a great man. I like to think that he started to try to be the best version of Labakan. Weeks later, Labakan shuffled on down to the jewelers and sold the diamond-encrusted box. The jeweler said that he had no use for a needle and thread, and Labakan, being a tailor, did. So he kept those. With the money, he bought a small house of his own, and he hung a sign out front that read... Simply, Labakan, Taylor. He had no customers in those first few days, so he got to work mending his own clothes. He started stitching the pants with the needle from the ferry when he was called away, and he returned to find the needle working all on its own. It made the neatest little stitches, and not only did the thread never come to an end, but it was always the right color. He chuckled. Even the smallest gift from the ferry, that which was meant to condemn him, could be used for good. Labakan, for all of his faults, was a very good tailor, and soon he had customers lining up. He worked with his door closed, and would cut the cloth and start the needle before moving on to the next task, leaving it to finish the clothes. He charged a fair price, and if someone couldn't pay, he still did the work anyway. He too had fallen on hard times in his life. Every now and then, he would follow up on news from the faraway kingdom, and learn of the fabled Prince Omar, who was the pride of his people and the terror of his enemies. And honestly, Labakan was kind of happy. He was right where he needed to be 
And honestly, moving from medieval battle to medieval battle sounded scary and miserable, so he was kind of glad he dodged those arrows. So, Labakan learned his place in the world. It wasn't as a lowly tailor, but as someone who dug deep, found something he loved and was able to do it every day of his life. Someone who helped his community, did good work, and did it with purpose and joy. What more can we ask for, really? And in time, the fairy's gift of happiness and wealth did come to him. like this story. I like how we start out with Labakan, and he does make some bad choices, but unlike a lot of stories of this type where the bad guy would just be executed by the king, Labakan is allowed to learn from his mistakes and grow as a person, and eventually accept himself for who he is. Next week is Robin Hood. Sorry for the bait and switch there. We're actually wrapping up Robin Hood, and I originally intended on it being a two-parter, but I think I can pare it down to a really good single episode. So yeah, next week, Robin Hood. If you didn't notice the feed drop earlier in the week, we now have Mitos y Leyendas, Myths and Legends in Spanish. This week, it's one of the original, brutal stories of Mulan. So please check that out if that's your thing. You can find it by searching for Mitos y Leyendas wherever you get your podcasts, or by following the link in the show notes. The creature this week is the Manata Caraya from Brazilian folklore. So... If this podcast and literally any horror movie ever has taught you a lesson, it should be that if you hear a weird noise in the dark forest, don't go toward it. I mean, whistling is fairly common and not monster-specific, and the Minatakaraya are not really a malicious type of creature, but still, it's not a great idea. The Minatakaraya are like the Ents, if Ents made snacks in their armpits. Yeah, under their tree arms, they grow coconuts, which... I guess they're trees, so they can't cut off their circulation by constantly putting their arm down on a coconut, but still, wouldn't that be super annoying? Regardless, they won't eat you because why have a human or really anything that tastes good and is not your armpit food when you can eat armpit food? It's not like it's an easy-to-unwrap container either. They have to pluck the coconut from their armpit and then slam it against their head repeatedly until it cracks open enough for them to eat it. I wondered why they didn't just pick the coconuts from other trees, but one, rude. I mean, if all trees are sentient, then you're stealing the tree's dinner when you pick its fruit. But also, I mean, maybe in a pinch, I'd eat my own armpit fruit, but I will starve before I pick and eat someone else's armpit fruit. Luckily, you can stay far, far away from this creature. Like I said, they whistle, but not in a good way. They have holes in the tops of their heads, and they constantly whistle when the wind blows. There's another mostly benevolent creature that harmonizes in the forest with all of its friends, but unfortunately those guys all died out. The local people avoid the creature so they won't get stepped on, but also because they don't want to deal with an armpit fruit-eating monster who won't keep quiet. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>